0: Okay, it's the technology over with. <laughs> okay, I'm pleased to see you all again. That just seems like a long time. <laughs> so tonight what I'm going to do um, I' want to talk to you about what I consider to be the Buddha's most important teaching. and one, it's worth really trying to memorize, and take on board and look at as it comes up in your meditation. Um, And some of you will know quite a bit about it already because you would have heard other teachers talk about it, you would have read about it in books. But hopefully I'll try and connect it in the other talks I give with this particular teaching, which is a teaching of dependent origination, uh, Pratichisamuppada. It's the most important teaching the Buddha gave. Um, He talked about it in terms of six realms of existence and he talked about it also in terms of twelve interdependent links which make up our problem. (laughs) Um, We have a problem and that problem is called samsara Um, and this is an explanation about how it came into being. Um, And personally I don't think it's that difficult to understand. I think it's extremely difficult to in a sense see it, see it arising, seeing it happening. In our meditational practices, um, that this teaching is difficult is uh, really seen when one looks at a sutta in the Dīgha in the long discourses of the Buddha. It's something called the Mahanadana Sutta, and it starts off, and I can only paraphrase it, it starts off with, the, uh, with Ananda basically saying, uh, Ananda is the Buddha's disciple. Um, and he's been around the Buddha for a long, long time. And he says to the Buddha, he "says um, I've got the teaching of dependent origination. <laughs> I understand it." And the Buddha goes, "Ananda, think again." <laughs> <laughs> Ananda, this is a profound teaching. (laughs) Ananda's like the fall guy. He's like you and I. (laughs) He kind of sort of bumbles along through the text, (laughs) making the most stupid errors. And so the Buddha is saying to Ananda, Ananda, um, basically this is a very, very difficult teaching, and I think he's probably indicating that in a way he doesn't doubt that Ananda understands it intellectually, but to have actually seen it, to see it in operation, to have looked into its very depths. One has to bear in mind that in the content of the Buddha's awakening, this was actually the content of the Buddha's awakening. Um, In this text here, um, the Udana, which is the text which is covered up with the Ittavutaka, and again, you can have a look at it, I don't know how many of you have looked at this, but these are kind of sectioned. And the first three sections, which are entitled The Bodhi Tree of the Ittavutaka, actually are just about dependent origination. Dependent origination forwards from ignorance to old age and death, and from old age and death, in the second of the, um, and the second of the Udana's, um, going all the way through to ignorance, and then doing it both directions. Um, this is considered to be such a profound teaching that the Buddha really does stress it, and there is a whole section of the connected discourses known as the Nikāya, which is simply devoted to this. Um, and there is not just one form, there are many, many forms. It's just that the 12 links is considered to be the most kind of rounded version of the teaching. So it's an important teaching. It's worth really memorizing the 12 links, um, and particularly the links which arise from contact to feeling to craving to attachment uh, to becoming. those are the ones that are really worth getting into but it's worth memorising them all because there's not too many lists you're you're not monastics, you don't have to memorise all the lists that you'd have to do as monastics, but these ones are worth memorising because you're going to see them in your meditational practice you're going to see that movement from feeling, from sorry contact, to the arising of feeling, to then craving kicking in, and I'll talk about that as we go through the linkage So it's important. Uh, There are two basic formulas for dependent origination as well. And remember one of the things that the Buddha was saying, nothing is uncaused. Absolutely nothing in this world arises out of nothing. So everything is caused. Every aspect of our mental and physical continuum is caused. And once those causes change, the consequences change. In a sense, that's the Buddha's radical program for awakening, is if you change the causes and conditions, such as we're trying to do in this retreat, change the causes and conditions in your mind from a mind that is full of niggardliness and kind of separation from others to making a movement which is towards others and to be connected with others, and to see that connection through this outward movement such as kindness and compassion. And so what the Buddha is giving is this radical program for mental transformation. Remember, samsara is a big mental problem. That's what it is. It's a big mental problem. It's a mental problem which uh, we have created. You, know, you Don't have to look for how did we create it in the sense of a great big uh, origin you know, thousands and thousands of years ago or anything like that. We're talking about how we do this moment to moment. Um, And these 12 links, of dependent origination, which the Buddha speaks about, arise in every moment. And every moment we have an opportunity to be different. We have the um, basic choice, in a sense, of falling back into habit conditions, or we have the choice of choosing the different mode. We have the choice, for example, of being upset, irritated, angry. And with awareness, we can move from that place to a place which is kinder and more compassionate and more open and more generous. And this is the whole purpose of this teaching, is in a sense to unravel Sangsara. Who knotted the knot? Who got us in the knot? Well, we did. So we have to get ourselves out of it. Remember, Buddhas, particularly in the early tradition, don't do anything other than point away. You know they cannot give you awakening, you have to do it for yourself. Uh, all of this is, you know, in a sense, placed firmly back in your hands for something to do, as you know, something to do, as a task to be accomplished. So just as we can create samsara, remember with its repetitiveness, with its cyclical you know feeling of going round and round in circles, uh, and I think that's a very good description of so much of ordinary life. Um, particularly our mental life, when we feel we are going, we are repeating uh, much of our kind of traumas and ways of behaviour and ways of doing things and ending up with very, very similar results again and again and again. And so if you want to put a stop to this, then the teaching of dependent origination is absolutely vitally and fundamentally important um, in overcoming this. So teaching of dependent origination starts off, where does it start? And you've heard me say this before, it starts off with avidya. It starts off with not knowing and not wanting to know. Yeah. That's the basic condition. Um, there's no sort of, and um, where did avidya come from? What avidya is here? You know, let's face it, we've all got it. Um, so if you've got it, you've got to deal with it. There's no kind of asking the metaphysical question behind this. Uh, the buddha is always of course trying to pull the rug out from underneath metaphysical questions Um, and a very good example of that again is in the Majjhima Nikaya. most of you will have heard this um, particular simile even if you haven't read it directly which is the simile of the arrow you know a man is hit by an arrow and he falls to the floor and somebody rushes up to him and says, Shall I get the doctor? And the man goes, Before I get you get the doctor, can you tell me what caste the man who fired the arrow came from? You know, what was his brother's call? Where does he live? <laughs> what was he wearing? <laughs> what was the <laughs> what was the what the feathers on the arrow made out? What is the shaft made of? And the Buddha just goes, and the man who asks questions in that way will surely die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a big joke. He's making very serious points, for, in a sense, through humour here, which is if we ask silly questions, then we won't get anywhere. <laughs> you know, ask questions which are pertinent to the problem. You know? um, so if we have a problem, always look into the questions which are pertinent to it, not these big, big metaphysical questions, which in some senses might be interesting, There's no doubt about that. uh, Metaphysical, philosophical-type questions are very, very interesting, and you can spend vast hours putting the mind through conundrums trying to solve them. But it doesn't deal with the problem of Dukkha. And that is what the Buddha is always making clear to us. It doesn't transform our behaviour. It doesn't um, deal with the problem of Dukkha as we experience it day by day. And so what we need is a medicine which is going to cure Dukkha. And remember also that the Buddha often is seen as a kind of spiritual physician. I mean, that's the way he's often portrayed in the text. Very much on the the basis of something like an Ayurvedic practitioner. You know, he gives you the diagnosis and then he gives you the kind of regimen towards health. If you like, what is going on in the teaching of dependent origination is part of the diagnosis. It's part of the how do we get into this problem. So it's, it's you know, sufficient for what we need to help us to reorientate ourselves once we begin to see how the Sangsaric world is coming into existence day by day for us. You know, minute to, by minute, actually, for us all. Starting off with avidya, this fundamental condition, as I say, of not knowing and not wanting to know. You know. Not wanting to clear eyes, not wanting to actually see impermanence and not self. Uh, Not wanting, actually, often, to be engaged with those kind of messy things called other people. (laughs) You know, that's all part of ignorance as well. That's all part of the lack of engagement. You know, we can often subscribe to these things and say, oh yes, I would like to, like the person with an addiction or something, I would like to give up, but they don't. They don't lay the conditions in place for change to really occur. And so what we're doing is, in understanding a idea, is opening ourselves up to the possibility of different forms of behaviour. These different forms of behaviour, for example, are exemplified in, in the kind and compassionate behaviour, in the sympathetic joy that can arise, or the, what I call the gentle joy that can arise in being with others, and the equanimity uh, towards others and holding no one person more dear than another in any sort of ultimate sense. These teachings are what gets us out into the world connected. In a sense, the fragmented, isolated egos that exist in samsara are exactly that. They're lonely. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a terrible task, keeping ourselves in our loneliness. Yet we seem hell-bent on it a lot of the time. Being cut off from others feeling ourselves as these isolated, lonely individuals, you know, with a you out there and a me in here. Um, And what, obviously, understanding the teachers, and particularly when we get later on from the... And the reason why I'm giving you dependent origination tonight is because it's going to connect with something I'm going to say later on, possibly next week, is it really is the precursor of the teaching which is known as shunyata, emptiness, understanding. You know, emptiness. Emptiness is actually a very negative-sounding term, isn't it? You know, emptiness sounds almost nihilistic, and it's meant to be. Because emptiness really is about the whole world being exactly in place, but empty of something we believed it to possess. You know, and that is really all the teaching is about. And I'll say much more about that when we've, when we've gone through this week and possibly into next week. And there's an ethics connected with that, which is an ethics of love. So, although i can't say too much about it tonight out of this teaching of dependent origination which has as its automatic um correlate the teaching of shunyata there is an ethics that arises out of this understanding of emptiness an ethics which actually is ethic an ethics of interrelatedness uh, of an ethics of interbeing Um, and it's radically important because it moves away from this, as I say, isolated set of individuals who just keep bumping into each other in the world, not really knowing each other, not really connecting in any way. And all that is, in a sense, part of avidya. I mean, avidya has content. I don't want to go into too much detail this time of night, but avidya has content. It has things like sensual desire uh, within it. It has the desire to be. You know, all the time, to be something in this world, you know, everybody's striving to be something, you know, rather than just being that's all and that's what we're trying to indicate within the content of, of this so there's ignorance, there is um, as I say this desire to be, there's sensual desire and there's also all this opinionatedness all stuck inside of us um, we think we know um, anybody know the story of Socrates in the ancient Greek world who's considered to be the wisest man in Greece and he was very puzzled by this um, and um, you know, he said, perhaps they call me the en- they call me the wisest man in Greece because I'm the only person that knows that they don't know anything. <laughs> Everybody else thinks they know something, you know, and in a way, that's what we walk. You know, we our relationship with the world is one of where we think we know rather than experience. You know, so in other words, a very um, loose translation of what's usually put down as view actually is opinionatedness. You know, we're full of opinions about all sorts of things and I kind of gave you an indication of this the other day when I said you know our opinions are drawn from all aspects of life we're conditioned by our language by our culture by our parents by the media virtually everything we come into do we have a thought in our head which is our own you know it's I mean, I mean almost as a serious thought because a lot of the time we don't even the thoughts we think about ourselves are often reflections of what others think about us you know. Um, so it's very useful to, to actually look at that, the way that we hold these opinions very strongly, and we take them for being the way things are, where the Buddha is actually saying, wake up, wake up to the way things are, and see it and experience it directly, without this kind of massive opinionatedness. You know, Indian culture of his period was as full, probably, of opinions about the way things are. In the opening sutta of the Dighanakaya, the Brahmajala sutta, um, there's a whole list of 60, 62 different viewpoints which were around in the Buddha's time, <laughs> you know, all purporting to be reality. Um, and so, you know, okay, that was probably just a brief snapshot into what people were thinking in his time, and these are kind of philosophical religious thoughts. However, you know, the one thing we do know is we, we receive an awful lot, we ingest it, and almost feel it is ours. Uh, And that is all the content of of a vidya. That um, doesn't remain isolated unto ourselves. It becomes our habit patterns. It becomes our habit formations. It becomes our dispositions to think in particular ways. So there's a vidya and then there's something called sanskaras. And the sanskaras are there, you know, driving us driving is and on the tibetan depiction of this you find a little man moulding pots as an illustration of this moulding the pots into some form and then collapsing them down again you know this is what we're doing we're moulding our lives in a way through the sanskaras we're really really moulding our lives in that way Um, these are the habit patterns they are technically karmic formations they all have consequences they, you know, something always comes back as a result of them. So mental, physical dispositions um, result in certain consequences, and if not changed, the consequences are almost inevitable. Yeah, and that, in a sense, would be karma as determinism. But of course, it isn't, because every time karma is always a response to something. You know, karma is a response to karma. You know, we find ourselves in a particular way, in, in a particular situation, and we either respond to it wholesomely or unwholesomely, and that becomes further karma—either wholesome or unwholesome karma. Here, so karma is never at an end. Uh, people often speak as if karma is like the consequence, and that's the finality of it, and it isn't. It's always being moulded. It's always shifting. It's never, you know, just a fate accompli. Yeah because our response to it is yet further karma. Our lives are embedded karma. This this word karma, or karman, it actually should be in Sanskrit, is um, just simply action. That is all it means. Action with consequences and moral intentionality behind it. It depends on the intention behind what we're doing. So we mould all these things in our lives, and we kind of get the payback at some point. Uh, Something happens to us. Some of it will occur immediately, and others will occur at later times. And all that has an effect on the arising of consciousness, which is the third factor in this. The third factor is consciousness. Consciousness is always a consciousness of something. We cannot have pure consciousness without it being of something, as you heard me say the other day when I was talking about the scandals. It's always directed towards something. So what does it have of its most immediate proximate object? Well, it has our habit patterns. In the very traditional way of understanding dependent origination, the traditional way usually divides it up into three time frames. The past, the present, and the future. The first two (coughs) are considered to be past. They're what we have set up, the conditions that have been set up in the past are the sanskaras via ignorance. Uh, in a traditional viewpoint, uh, that is what you get reborn with. <laughs> Not a very promising start. <laughs> you, know, you can almost say only things could get worse from that point <laughs> onwards. <laughs> but what it really is indicating in a more psychological condition is this is what is passing over from moment to moment, from our past actions. You know we as a result of that ignorance, set up conditions which we find ourselves conscious of. And so we're conscious of them, and we take a position on those, and the consciousness is affected, without going into too much detail. It's either wholesome or unwholesome consciousness. Um, And it takes on, if you like, the flavour of whatever the disposition is. So, as you heard me say when I was talking about the sanskaras in relation to the skandhas because you find the skandhas all occurring in this virtually as well is that the the sanskaras are really most of what we are that's most of what we are aware of is actually our dispositions our propensities to like and dislike and everything else that goes with it Um, and that in a way is what often keeps us separate from others because these dispositions you know, we might have a wholesome thought arising, we quickly banish it. <laughs> you know, get behind me, a unho- you know, wholesome thought. Um, joking aside, this is what is happening. Often what we do is just fall back into the well-established habit patterns. Now, obviously, to get clear, you have to have awareness and you have to have some degree of concentration to be able to see this happening, um, because it's happening so quickly. You know, it's happening in the blink of an eyelid. We often just find ourselves enacting rather than thinking, well, I shall I do or shan't I? Just occasionally that creeps in. Often when that does creep in, when we have the choice and we have spaciousness within that choice, then we often will move and gravitate towards the wholesome rather than the unwholesome. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen this, and with anger, you know, anger is rising in a situation. You're actually watching it because it's coming up fairly slowly, as opposed to that kind of rapid stuff, where we find ourselves being angry uh, very quickly. In those instances, often what happens is it arises, and you go, oh, "Can't be bothered," <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you see where it's going to lead. You see that it's, you know, it's almost a, a kind of stupid response to a situation which doesn't really require that kind of response at all so consciousness is being conditioned by whatever the sanskaras are and as i say they're the bulk of what passes over moment to moment to moment so virtually within every moment that we are dwelling in there is consciousness of habitual formations you know within ourselves just do that. I mean, when we sit there sometimes without, say, doing the meta or the karuna thing, you can just see it again and again. Familiar friends arising. There's your, all your old habit patterns. There comes the old familiar anxiety. Um, hello, friend, as it comes up yet again. <laughs> you know, because they will come up in patterns. And the more you do it, the more you sit in that way, the more patterns you will discern. You know, so it's quite important in the sense of understanding where that's coming from. Now that's going to set up conditions for mental and physical functioning. You know, over a lifetime of doing things, thinking things, um, doing things to our body which are coming out of habit patterns, we end up, if you like, um, at this stage, blueprinting what is going to occur in the future. You know, So what we call Nama Rupa, uh, which is mind, body, actually name and form is what it literally means in Sanskrit. Yeah, out of Nama Rupa, we're laying down the blueprint for our bodies in later life. So what we do to them now is important. And if they're driven by habit patterns, you know, unwholesome habit patterns, you end up with perhaps serious physical illnesses towards the end of your life, yeah, or certainly latter part of your life. Also, if we have... conditions which govern the mind and make it operate in a particular way then also we're going to give rise to certain mental malfunctioning um, crampedness, closure the mind closing down, trying to attempt to, you know, control everything and manipulate everything. So, at that stage, what it's saying is, out of consciousness, there is, you know, consciousness obviously is going to be embodied, going to be embodied in name and form, mind and body, and that is the blueprint for what is going to come later, for what is actually going to happen. Now, because there is mind and body, there is also going to be six senses, and our senses are going to be conditioned. Remember five senses, the five normal senses, plus a sixth sense. These are called you know, six sense spheres. You know, I like the word sphere because it shows how all-encompassing it is. You know, there is a, a sphere of hearing. There is a, uh, there is a visual sphere. You know, there's a gustatory sphere as well. And plus there is a mental functioning sphere of manas, which is um, all the mental sensing that goes on. Um, and that is what is occurring with the six senses. Now, in a sense, I don't think there's very much to about that, it's just saying that the mind is embodied, and as an embodied mind in this world we possess six senses, and we're automatically, because of those six senses, straight into the next link, which is contact. We can't help but contact things. You know, and even if we were put, from a Buddhist perspective, in a sensory deprivation chamber, we would still be contacting. Because you'd be, still be contacting all that mental stuff that's going around. You know, so you know, even if you were deprived of your five senses, you know, the sixth sense would still be functioning here. Um, so we're into contact. Contact is you know, the way we reach out to the world. We're, our eyeballs almost palpate the world, they touch it hearing touches our ear sense um, and literally we try to make sense out of it and out of that contact arises a good old familiar friend, Vedana you know, feeling you know. so we don't simply sit there and say mm, yeah, I'm contacting things, it comes <laughs> <laughs> it comes to us as pleasant, unpleasant or neither you know, again going back to the talk about the skandhas I gave you the other day yeah, so pleasant, unpleasant and neither, pleasant, unpleasant, neither. All of our contacts, mental, physical, you, know, all of our contacts will have a feeling tone to it. Now, the other day I said, please don't confuse feeling with emotion. but how, however, what I would want to say in a kind of more advanced sense of this, particularly in psychology, is that the emotions get often get based or built on a primary sense feeling. You know, of like or dislike of something. So in other words, an emotion is that sometimes a vast story that we build up on a basic sense perception. <clears throat> that is all. About why we like something or why we don't like it. They're not just that, but a lot of the emotions, these cognitive dissonances, the unhealthy, unwholesome emotions, are stories based on either grasping after something or rejecting something. You know, very strong dislike for example is based on the fundamental sense of you know like dislike that we get when we contact something see something touch something taste something smell something sense it with the mind whatever it is then the story really begins <laughs> because out of the feelings that are arising arises almost immediately what is known as trishna or tanha which is the craving for something. Now, interestingly, of course, craving isn't just craving to have, it's also craving to avoid. Yes. Um, in fact, I would say the vast bulk of a lot of our lives are about the things we don't want to happen to us in our lives. So there's an enormous kind of amount of material we're rejecting, pushing away. That is obviously based on the primary feeling of dislike, of not wanting to happen. Unfortunately, of course, life isn't like that. We often get that which we dislike and not get that which we like. And there is a primary cause for a lot of dissatisfaction in our lives. Dissatisfaction, unsatisfaction. These are probably more adequate translations of Dukkha than than, than the traditional one of suffering is you know, suffering over exit a lot sometimes it can be can really feel that raw and that painful but a lot of the time it's that basic day to day grind that you find of getting stuff that you don't want and even though you're trying very hard to avoid it not getting what you are after you know, um, because there's nothing written into the contract of life that says you're going to get what you want at all you know, so this is the primary feeling tone behind so much of ordinary day to day life so we're craving and the cravings come I mean, you know, you know Buddhists are list fetishists you know, it comes in three forms <laughs> you know, we, we have craving for sensual goodies I won't go into that again because that's pretty obvious isn't it um, that will include everything that we try to stimulate ourselves with sensorily and sensually you know, so from um, all the indulgences that we have, all of the nice and beautiful gadgetry that we have in our you know, homes and lives and everything, to stop us from feeling a lot of the time, and actually to amuse us in many ways. So that we end up with this phrase I often use, which is that we end up amusing ourselves to death. Because <laughs> that's all we're doing. <laughs> you know, through our senses, through sensual pleasures. That we go. But the problem with sensual pleasures is you've got to keep on doing it, you've got to keep on renewing it, and it becomes an ever increasing, fast pursuit that you have to go out and pursue those sensual pleasures. Just like, you know, if you look, and I think I can't remember whether I mentioned this or not, but if you look at, for example, films that were made in the 60s and the 70s and the 50s and things like that, look how slow the editing is, comparatively. Things have got faster and faster and faster, and the sensory part of it has got greater and greater and greater, and the stimulation has got greater and greater. Because, in a way, that is what happens when you indulge, not just use our senses, but when we indulge them, overindulge them. The craving for things like the stuff which is so dominant in the Western world at the moment, drugs and alcohol and cigarettes and all this sort of stuff, again, often people cannot use it wisely, they cannot bring any wise attention to the use of these things because automatically there is stimulation and that stimulation leads to wanting further stimulation, almost crossing a boundary. And that is occurring within us. So that's the obvious one. That's what's known as Kama, you know, as in Kama Sutra. So sexuality is included in that as well. Uh, but Kama means anything to do with sensuality, which obviously is not just sexuality. Then there is the Tanha, which is, or Trishna, which is, you know, the craving to be again. That one I spoke about, you know, wanting to be, wanting to be something, to perpetuate yourself, to... Um, keep ourselves remembered in some way just had to you know, keep ourselves in being no matter how you know, small that might be ultimately, As might even just come down to the chippings on the tombstone I think I might have mentioned um, but it might be the craving for a full fledged you know, me being reincarnated, reborn, a soul which goes on forever um, all of that is involved in it And in a way, that side of Boa actually is almost like the erotic drive, to keep us driving and compulsively being something in this world, rather than being just yourself, but to be something, to be remembered, to be um, perpetuated in some sense. And that's on a good day. (laughs) And then there's the bad day. (laughs) <laughs> which is the vibhava the craving not to be. <laughs> yeah, psychologically this is very acute. Yeah, you know, it prefigures Freud by you know, kind of two and a half thousand years almost, or two thousand four hundred years at least, um, because Freud talked very much about drives which are you know, drives to keep oneself in being, and drives which they're in a sense, which were the opposite, which he called thanatos, the death drive. And actually at its worst manifestation, most seriously, of course, the Vibhawattanam can manifest as that, as suicidal impulses, suicidal tendencies. For most of it it doesn't. It manifests as things like depression, not wanting to get out of bed, you know, feeling it's just all too much. You know, that kind of feeling. <laughs> <laughs> You no, know, because, actually, if you think about it, this is still related to the self, you know, keeping oneself together. You know, often when we're distracting ourselves, we're engaged in all the sensual stuff and the, the drive to be in this sense that I was indicating in terms of bawa, we're caught up, we're kind of distracted with it. Uh, but sometimes, of course, the, the, the seriousness of the situation often obtrudes on us, doesn't it? It comes into our lives and often shakes it sometimes it can be external events sometimes it can be events within ourselves sometimes we just don't understand where things like depression and that come from within us we don't understand the wellsprings for them all we get is the feeling of the blueness the blackness however you want to describe it of life and it all being such a terrible terrible struggle to keep oneself together and I'm not joking about this because this is something particularly as an individual um, that in a sense, is an enormous burden on us. You know, to go out each day to be this individuated person with all these views and opinions, you know, again, that's considered to be a good thing. You know, somebody who hasn't got an opinion about something is worthless. <laughs> you know, you've got to be opinionated. You've got to be an individuated person. We tend to forget, of course, that all of this stuff about individuation and separateness is actually, in terms of the modern self, of very recent origin. It goes back to things like Shakespeare. You know, this is where there's the Renaissance. The self that we have now is very much a Renaissance self, you know, which has come through to us. And it has given us an enormous burden. Actually, you know, when Hamlet says to be or not to be, nobody else was asking that question before him. <laughs> you know, it, that becomes a real question. And in a way, that again is the question, isn't it? That between Bawa and Vibawa, to be or not to be, yeah. You know? Yeah, the difficult, the good day, the being, or the bad day, the not being, wanting to be. Now, of course, from a Buddhist perspective, and I could say a lot more about that, but I realise it's getting late. Um, from a Buddhist perspective, both of those positions that we take up, both of those positions, bhava and vibhava, are based on a fundamental misconception, which is a misconception of what the self is. Yeah? Coming back to what I was saying about the scandals the other day, it's based on a fundamental misconception of thinking the self to be a thing, a thing that can be perpetuated or a thing that can be totally eradicated. Rather than, as I was trying to indicate, you a set of processes, whereby if we live that set of processes, there can be an openness, and actually to move into that relationship is to move into a relationship of love with ourselves. a radical act of love that I think I mentioned, you know, when we began. You know, that is the movement. once we begin to appreciate and live that process of what it means to be in the fundamental sense, not in the sense of trying to be something, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre had a very good expression for this. Everybody was trying to be something. In fact, we all wanted to be like tables and chairs, basically. You know, they were something. They didn't change that much. <laughs> You, know, you looked at the chair and you knew where you were. Look at a human being. <laughs> Look at a human being, you've got a real problem. <laughs> you know, because this person is changing and you are changing. Now, um, he uses this in the sense of the idea of being and nothingness. You know, everything else is being in the sense of having some kind of sense of plenum of being such as the solid objects of the world. And what he argued, I think from a Buddhist perspective, this is a very, very good position. What he was arguing was actually human beings, ourselves, are trying to do that. We're trying to turn ourselves into things. This is why we over-identify, for example, with what we do, often, in this world. You know, what the profession is, what the job is. Even, even if we don't have one, we often identify with that. We can identify with a set of symptoms. Of being something. Because it makes us something. Now I know what I am. I'm this set of symptoms. (laughs) And it gives you a sense of identity. Often we're terrified of not having a sense of identity. And so we grasp after something to give us a sense of solidity. Of solidness. We're almost afraid of our airiness. Of our ability to be all kinds of things in this world. In a way, that's what the Buddha is suggesting, going back to the Buddha here, is that you can be something different. That is the opportunity that you have in this movement towards awakening, to be completely different, to be not just one thing, but to be be responsive and loving and caring in whatever situation you find yourself in. And that might mean that you manifest differently in every situation. It might mean that your language will change, and so on and so forth. That you don't have to be this one Person with a programmed set of responses just responding in this way because that's the way I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't have to be responding in that way. And when I say that phrase, and again I've joked about it, haven't I? That's the way I am. Um, that says can't possibly change. Change is not possible. Yeah. It's, like, it's almost like laying it down on the table that change is absolutely impossible. Now, that is not what the Buddha is doing. He's trying to make us clear that being this open process that we are, change is always possible. You know, because you, you know, dependent origination, again, in a slightly different sense, is if you change the causes and conditions, then you change the outcome. Change your way of thinking, molding, in fact, this is, in a sense, what makes Buddhism as a tradition so unlike any, in scare quotes, other religious tradition, is it solely about the transformation of mind, solely about it. You know, there is a problem, that problem is the way the mind ordinarily perceives things and reacts to things in this world. And what the Buddha is recommending, of course, is this thorough, thorough transformation and clarification of mind. You know, there is no other tradition, and certainly not the monotheistic traditions, because they are so different, and that's not a criticism, it's just to say they're different, that aims at that soul thing. So the Buddhist tradition is very unique in that, and aiming at this total mental transformation. Going back to craving. (laughs) (laughs) Continuity didn't work very well there, but never mind. (laughs) The craving... <laughs> Stop it! <laughs> the, craving, the craving automatically gives rise to attachment. That is what it's going to give rise to. Um, the word upadana, um, as I tried to make clear to you, means to fuel something. It's to fuel a material process. You know, When we talk about upadana as being attachment... But the Buddha was using a metaphor actually using that word because it was a word that was used in Brahmanical religion which meant piling fuel on the flames, literally, of your sacrificial fire that you had to keep going. And so the Buddha pinched a word and he used it. And he used it now that to create Upadana or to engage in Upadana was to fuel the fires of greed, hatred and delusion. So attachment is what fuels the fire. Yeah. And it does actually in the Sanskrit and Pali also has a sense of, of closed, you know, the closed hand as well, the upa part of it. You know, the dana can mean the giving, but also in this saying, the upa means the closure of it, you know, the giving hand. Yeah. So upadana is that <coughs> attachment, and we are actually trapped by our attachments. And I know many of you have heard me say this before, but it's, it's a good analogy, which is the, the analogy of the monkey trap that's often used in Africa to trap monkeys because these things are you know placed in the ground with a piece of fruit usually that the monkey wants with a long thin neck one that can just get their hand into and push it down into the bowl to pick whatever is at the bottom and they grab whatever is in bottom and because they won't let go of the fruit they've got at the bottom they're trapped all they've got to do is let go and they can get away again and there are all these monkeys stuck with their hands in these things, just holding off. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a wonderful analogy for us. That's weird. We're all caught in the monkey trap. Yeah. We're all caught by those things that we won't let go of. And uh, you know, if I was going to talk and give you a much longer talk on this, I mean, it would be that, you know, do we have the courage to let go And this is part of the message of this. Do we have the courage to let go? To let go of the known. Because actually what we know a lot of the time, I'm I'm not kind of wanting to be cynical about this, but a lot of what we know is unhappiness. And we do know it. And we're, in a way, quite attached to it. Quite attached to our unhappiness. We might complain about it, but we're attached to it. And don't want to let go of it. Yeah, you know, because actually, I know who I am. I'm miserable, <laughs> 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 or whatever. I mean, again, I'm overegging it to make a point here. Um, because there are joys and there are the good things in life as well. But often, because of a pervading sense of transitoriness to them, they also are tinged with melancholy as well. Because we know they're going to change. That so it's not, you know, even the object if we are attached to an object is not going to remain pristine. It's going to deteriorate, things are going to happen to, it might get broken or whatever. We kind of almost have that sense, even if we don't fully bring it to cognizance for ourselves. And so we're often entrapped by what we have. And what we have is not just physical, obviously the things that we surround ourselves with. It's often the mental attachments that we have as well. they not wanting to let go of a particular, say, resentment about something. Not wanting to let go of a feeling of hurt about something. Now, I'm sure you can make your own kind of um, psychological references here, but we are attached an awful lot of stuff that we carry around with. It's almost like a swag bag. You know, we're ha- hauling it around in our lives. We actually kind of feel much lighter if you just drop it. Um, but, like the monkey... You no, know, in a way, I mean, I don't suppose the monkey does ask himself the question, but or, but we have to ask ourselves the question: Is do we want to be free? Yeah? Because that actually can be a frightening prospect, perhaps, you know, to step out into the unknown. I'm standing all here on this ground. Again, I'm using a metaphor, but I'm standing here on this ground, and it's fairly unhappy. But I know it, and I'll stay here because I know it that's why for example all kinds of people get stuck in things like abusive relationships and that it's not because you know they they often say they want to step out but they return because it is what is known and that's a very kind of serious example of what is happening to us a lot of the time uh, which is we are stuck within the known despite the fact that it's you know, tinged with unhappiness, misery unsatisfactoriness you, know, you name your word really for it whatever one suits you yeah. but we remain stuck with it simply because it's known that is part of our attachment to it. and in a way that's going to create a form of the next link which is a form of becoming you know, there's, there's a kind of result there's a movement towards something If it's something we want out of our craving and attachment, then we will manipulate situations until we get it. We're tremendously manipulative. We manipulate life and massage it to get what we want a lot of the time. Now, we don't always get what we want, but we desperately try to do it uh, to get what we want in life. And that, in a sense, is a sense of bawa, as we find it in here, in this particular link is that sense of trying to control the situation so that we get, or avoid, because it can also be that, avoid that which we don't want and get that which we want in life. And that is going to result in the next link, which is actually your future, in a way, which is jati, which is our birth. You're going to find yourself in a situation no matter what. If you get it or avoid it, then you're going to find yourself in a particular uh, avoiding situation or getting situation. Sometimes it doesn't work out, but you still find yourself in a situation as a result of all those mental things that have gone before. Because it's happening like that. This is happening in every moment. Yeah, it's occurring that um, our, our past is influencing our very present, which is now giving rise to our future. So, as I often say, when you sit here on your cushions or on your chair or wherever you're sitting, you are your past, your present and your future, all here now, right now. Okay? You don't have to project a future into the you know, kind of distant future. It's being formed now as you sit here. And so that's why it's so important for us to start to become aware because if this is happening, in a way, if we have little awareness of it, the future becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You you lay down the conditions and you get a certain result and it's pretty invariable. Invariable. You You get that result simply by having laid down the conditions because those are all the preceding conditions that give rise to Jati. Now, the thing about it is, that every moment is transitory, every moment is impermanent. Even if we find ourselves in the perfect situation, (coughs) if we do find ourselves in the perfect situation, it's going to decline and decay. And therefore we we find ourselves in the twelfth of the links, which is Jaramarala, which is usually translated as um, old age and death. Which really shows you in a sense disintegration and finally extinction of something. And then we're back into the whole ball game of a video again. Yeah. And so that that, if you like, is the process by which Sangsara is formed and how it is continuously formed. So what is our past coming through from our conditions are passing through our present? And if we continue to crave and grasp and, and manipulate in the sense of being then we get a result, but that result won't last. It will decline. And then we're straight back again. Now, unless that all sound very pessimistic, and I hope it doesn't, because it's not meant to, because it is simply diagnostic, it's meant to show you that there are ways of bringing that to cessation. Okay. The ways of bringing it to cessation, for example, and considered to be the kind of weakest part of the whole chain of dependent origination, is the link between Vedana, feeling, and tanha, craving. So it's kind of severing the link. That's where you drive the wedge in. And that is what sati does, awareness, as in satipatthana. It puts in a wedge of awareness between the arisal of the feeling and the reactivity that generally goes with it. So that you're putting that in. And in a sense, that's exactly what you're doing, even in developing compassion and kindness because it drives in a wedge in between our normal responses to situations where we perhaps act unpleasantly or unkindly or without compassion or without fellow feeling towards somebody because it is simply reactive. Um, because that is craving. I mean, it doesn't matter. You could use the word craving, desire, or reactivity. It doesn't matter. It all really implies the same kind of thing. That it's something that's occurring immediately on the arising of a certain type of feeling. So if it's a pleasant feeling, you want it to continue. If it's an unpleasant feeling, you want to avoid it. And if it's neutral, you don't even see it. You, know? you don't see that which is neutral. And so this is bringing that moment of awareness. Now, they have a phrase in Pali, which is Yonasa Manasakaro, which is actually to bring wise attention. Most of our lives are lived with unwise attention. Our minds are scattered, they're fragmented, and I know you're all kind of experienced meditators, so hopefully that whole meditation process starts to bring out of the scattered and fragmentation dimensions of the mind, scattered and fragmented dimensions of the mind, some kind of degree of wholeness and concentration and focus. That is when it makes the move from unwise attention, ah Yamasu Manasakaro, to wise attention. You know, that wise attention is what keeps us, you know, basically focused in life. We bring some wisdom to what we are doing in life trying to utilise and trying to put into place wholesome mental states such as metta, such as karuna, in our lives. These are all part of the wholesome mental conditions that are often listed in the abhidhamma lists, along with things like self-respect, along with things like concern for others, along with things such as confidence and trust as well. You know, I could give you a whole list because there's an awful big list of fifty-two unwholesome um, and wholesome mental states. I told you none, you know kind of fetishes for lists. Um, but what it does is it shows you the mental furniture which is there, the things that, that that are to be developed and cultivated. Concentration is to be cultivated as well as a factor. Now, what of course <clears throat> Meta loving kindness does is it also concentrates the mind. I don't believe it is just a concentration exercise, but it also concentrates the mind because it opens us up to seeing a situation through love and pushing a wedge between that arrival of feeling. You know, here's somebody I don't like. You know, that, and the immediate sensation of dislike comes upon me because I've seen this person and they've done things to me and I feel it's you know, you know, not going anywhere other than negatively. Um, but instead of reacting in that way, to try and extend, say, loving-kindness or compassion to that person in that instance. Now, that is automatically starting to sever that reactivity. So what we're doing is retraining the mind. And once one link is completely severed, in a sense, the whole of samsara drops apart. Mm-hmm all the sangsara drops apart. Now, my own personal feeling is that it drops apart just as much through kindness and compassion as it does through the cultivation of so-called insight. Because the kindness and the compassion itself is a way of opening up and thus becomes a form of insight uh, which counteracts dependent origination in this very, very strong sense. Now, dependent origination, as I say, you must hear it as occurring all in one moment, which is why it's so necessary, why the sitting process is so necessary in order to develop that wise attention that allows it to be seen. Um, you know, for example, to see the arisal of a feeling and to see the immediate desire to push something away or to grasp hold of it. You know. At this stage, that is, might be all that you can do is just begin to see it. But as you begin to see it, it starts to slow down the process. And in slowing down the process, you have a chance or a choice in life. What was absent before, you have a chance or a choice in order to choose the wholesome as opposed to the unwholesome. Tibetans have a word for this, a word you might be very familiar with. It's called bardo. Bardo means any in-between moment. That's all. It's usually associated in the moments between, you know, death and so-called rebirth here. But very specifically, it actually just means any in-between moment. So the moment between this and that. Now, what generally happens is this arises and that follows automatically. However, there are other choices that we can make, which are non-reactive choices. And in a sense, the Baradho here is opening up the Baradho of one's own mind moments, that you then open up to having choice in your life, where choice hasn't existed before, because we simply go down the road route of the route of reactivity. So that is what we're doing. That's why dependent origination is so important, because it's a complete one. It's a complete map. It is a map of how the Sankhyaic world comes about and why we feel this sense of entrapment because when you see it depicted unfortunately I didn't bring one otherwise I could have shown you when you see it depicted it's depicted as a circle yeah? you're trapped within that circular activity within going round and round and round and round in it yeah? ordinary life often has that tone to it as well doesn't it I, mean, I don't know if it has for you but it certainly has for me over the years <laughs> <laughs> a feeling entrapped within mental conditions that you have a desire to change but not a lot of effort to do it sometimes we don't put enough enough effort into wanting or desiring change because it probably goes back to that avidya again I'm not really really wanting to know ultimately so dependent origination becomes one of the chief tools for the Buddha's opening up of this world now just a couple of words and then I'll finish which is, <clears throat> there are two versions of dependent origination, um, because dependent origination applies to everything. The version I've given you applies directly and specifically to beings like ourselves. In other words, beings who possess minds, you know, sentient creatures, uh, particularly to human beings, obviously. Um, there is another version um, that the Buddha gives, which is what I call the general formula of dependent origination. And he usually says it's something like this. This happens... That happens. This ceases, and that ceases. That is the formula of dependent origination. So, in other words, everything arises out of causes and conditions. Now, because that is the case, that everything arises out of causes and conditions, and particularly in the case of the mental sphere, it means that, of course, there are causes and conditions that we know and can identify which sustain samsara. Now, I've mentioned to you in virtually every talk I've given to you so far greed, aversion, and delusion. Yeah, and all of the psychology that rises out of them. Because all of our unwholesome psychology is rooted. That's why they're called the three roots, the three unwholesome roots. All of our unwholesome psychology is rooted in those three things. They produce samsara. They produce our feeling of stuckness, our muddledness, our confusion in this world, wondering what, what on earth we're doing a lot of the time. Um, there are um, an antidote to that, there is an antidote to that, and all of our wholesome psychology is rooted in the three opposites, which I've also talked about and given you, you know, which is generosity, obviously kindness, friendliness, it's often translated as, and insight into the way things are. And all of our wholesome psychology is rooted in those three things. So it's making the transition from one to the other. Developing the wholesome and letting the wholesome go. Unwholesome go. Not carrying that great big bag around with you of unnecessary mental suffering that you normally drag around with you or we all drag around with us. Now... This particular teaching, particularly the more general, in in very particularly the more general formula, is often used as a synonym for emptiness, because it's saying, if that depends on, you know, if this depends on that, then, um, in a sense, you can't talk about anything possessing any intrinsicality, any intrinsic existence, because if this depends on that, take away that, this disappears. Now, in the positive sense, that's the blueprint for, as I say, nirvana occurring, because if you take the conditions away that sustain samsara, to use the metaphor as often used, the candle goes out. Once the wick and the wax have been burnt up, there is no flame. Mm-hmm. That's and that is the literal meaning of the word nirvana. It means gone out. It's an intransitive verb. Yeah. It means gone out. Now. This teaching of dependent origination, as I say, much more in its general formula, becomes the foundation for emptiness. And emptiness really means the emptiness of intrinsic existence. And that puts us into a whole different form of ethics, and I'll talk to you about that another time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anybody has any questions. I've got sort of 15 minutes or some questions <coughs> if wants to ask. Yep. Um, I'm kind of puzzled
1: about the, uh, confused about this term, samsari consistence, mm-hmm. and, and um, um, can, can what would occur if we sever the links, uh, what kind of existence would occur, or arise. In other words, um, um, The Buddha was enlightened, and he continued his actions. Yep. So he continued his relationships. Um, Mm -hmm. So ending quote unquote samsaric existence isn't the same as annihilating the world that we live in. Of course not. Of course. Dispensing with having a life and being a person, and so um, is what's is Nirvana is is. Well, anyway, you might get my
0: drift. I do. I very much get your drift. (laughs) Well, I mean, let's put it this way. Um, You rightly say the Buddha continues his existence in the world. In fact, after the awakening experience, the experiencing of nirvana, you know, the nirvana ring, as I was putting it the other day, uh, the Buddha continues to teach. He teaches for 45 years, walking around northern India on foot, you know, um, teaching to whoever he comes across, you know, from the blacksmith to the king to the bhikkhus and to the brahmins. and He's teaching everybody at that time. How's he doing that if he's severed samsara? Well, he's doing it out of the nirvanaring experience, out of the experience of nirvanaring. There is what technically is known in the text as nirvana in this world. And then there's something called parinirvana or parinibbana, if you're using the Pali. Nibbana and parinibbana. Parinibbana is the final nibbana, which is occurring at death. Now, the nibbana in this world is the one really which the Buddha is urging everybody to go for, in a sense to go for that you nibbana know, in this world. Because remember, it's a way of being. When I say the severance of samsaric existence, doesn't mean that the Buddha pops out of existence, or you and I would pop out of existence. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that this world becomes different for us. I often quote here um, a passage by T.S. Eliot that some of you might know out of The Four Quartets. And this is, in a way, similar to the experience, which it's in, in Little Gidding, which is the final poem in the quartet. And it says, at the end of all our journey is to return to the same place and know it for the first time. That's the end of all of our journey. And in a way, that's a very, very good metaphor because in a way, we journey this world, but most of us don't experience it as if for the first time. We experience it as being familiar, stale, confused, all the kind of stuff I've mentioned in this world. And In a sense, that's sangsara. To get to this place and know it for the first time is in a sense like the constantly fresh nirvana experience. You know, so there's nothing obvious in this world. There is nothing stale, there is nothing boring. There is there's this vibrancy to the world, which you know, personally I feel that the nirvana experience brings about. It brings about a way of seeing and interacting with the world that isn't obviously, because it's the end of samsara, tinged with unsatisfactoriness. The world is as it is. And so you deal with it as it is from day to day. You know, and that is what the Buddha does, you know, in, if we can believe what's in the Pali Canon. Personally, I think it's a it's a, probably, from a scholarly point of view, a reasonably accurate um, account of a lot of what went on in the Buddha's life. You know, so that it's not the end of the world. That's actually how it was misinterpreted. That's actually how the nirvana experience was misinterpreted by the early commentators, and particularly the early um, Westerners who encountered Buddhism. They said, you know, this is a funny religion. It talks about complete extinction being the goal of it. (laughs) In other words, they took nirvana as being literal. When it says blown out, gone out, and all that which is actually referring specifically to the blowing out of the fires of greed, hatred and delusion. They thought blown out means literally that, you know, kind of gone. And I thought, what a peculiar religion. You know, everybody's desiring extinction. You know, like a great sort of herd of lemmings. Okay. You know, and and obviously that was a misinterpretation. So, so what we're talking about is nirvanaing in this world. The arahants as well, which is the condition, obviously, which Theravada Buddhism puts as its foremost um, goal. The arahant is somebody who nirvanas in this world. That's what's happening. Is somebody who lives that day-to-day, minute-to-minute experience of that way of being in the world, driven by, as I said, you know the the um, generosity, the kindliness, and the insight, and all of the psychology, which arises out of that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. it's, it's not uh, the
1: end of, uh, you would have samsara and nirvana mixed together, you hmm. an ongoing. And it wouldn't be the end of history or yeah. extinction of anything. No. But, but um, and nirvana isn't here, while well, samsara is here. Be, it's a kind of end of some kind of ignorance for some
0: people yes, it's the end of ignorance and it's specifically the end of dukkha that's what it's the end of if you're talking about the extinction of anything it's the extinction of dukkha and all of the conditions which uphold our dukkering in this world
1: for some beautiful beings
0: yes, yes I mean that's what the arahat is. I mean, is I mean literally the word arahat means noble you know, those who have nobility in this world. You know, often the way that we live in this world as, you know, unawakened beings is very ignoble. You know, it's the very opposite of nobility. It's kind of grubby a lot of the time. You know, the way that we live in this world and the way our kind of mental stuff is going on, it's pretty degraded and pretty debased, Uh, And you can see that. I mean, we can see that. And and this is not kind of being censorious about it. It's just kind of owning up to what is actually happening. You know, we don't have to beat ourselves up about it, but it has this kind of grubby texture to it, which makes the world seem itself dirty, funny. You know, these are all sort of ways that we can see it. Um, It leads to darkness and not being able to relate properly in this world. Um, Now, the opposite, if you're using a metaphor of light... What this awakening process is, is light flooding the world, uh, seeing it in a very illuminated way. I mean, these are all kind of metaphors that are drawn from the text that I'm using, that the world appears illuminated and illumined. In later forms of Buddhism, it goes even into seeing this world not as a kind of boringly obvious thing, but as a jeweled mandala, for example. You know, a mandala being this kind of circular diagram, have you seen it? Which is actually a diagram of a jewelled palace. That's what it is, and that's a metaphor for the world. You know. There's a, there's a, a lovely um, piece in one Tibetan text where it says, you know, what is a mandala? He's asking the question, what is a mandala? And it says it means to take any piece of reality and surround it with beauty, which I thought is a lovely expression. To take any facet of reality as one sees it, In a way, it's almost the extension of what we're doing here with kindness and compassion, to take it and surround it with that beautiful and the beauty of that feeling about it. That is the mandala many of you have heard me say this before but I mean, I'll mean i say it again because it is so indicative of what's going on even in these late forms of Buddhism about this feeling about being in the world as being something not obvious and boring and degraded and the ways we can feel and I'm talking about more of our depressive ways of being in this world but every, every uh, Tibetan Tantra and Sanskrit Tantra starts off with a little mantra which is emar ho which the really technical translation of is wow You know, because that's what it means. (laughs) It's meant to be an exclamation of wonderment or astonishment at the world. You know? But most of us go, oh, there's another sunset. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm putting on things that probably are not happening to you. But but you know what I mean, just in a sense, how, you know, seen one sunset, seen them all. (laughs) 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 That kind of attitude that we can bring to peak experiences, actually, Mm -hmm. um, rather than opening ourselves up to the what is happening. You know we homogenize and we see things in the same way it's the opposite of that kind of wowness of experience that can be opened up when our minds open up in an expansive way and that that really is what we're doing with compassion and kindness opening our minds to an expansion and you know the word I used the other day to embrace what is rather than go, oh, keep it a distance, please. You yeah, just, know, yeah, just there. <laughs> you know, where I can control you. <laughs> yeah, that's the opposite of that. It's, it's allowing the world in. And that actually, and I don't want to underestimate this or joke about this, that can, can be, in this condition, quite a scary experience. To actually allow it in for a change. You know? Because... Um, of a sense of our fragility or the feelings that we have of fragility in this world and we might get hurt or damaged or, or whatever the anxiety is that might arise in our minds about it. So we resort and fall back again on the old habitual thing of putting it at a distance. Plus keeping it at a distance. Yeah. This attitude is one that welcomes in and opens up you know, to allow what is to come in to us.
1: Yeah, so,
0: the, <laughs> the
2: Arhant, would would the Arhant still have um,
0: five skandhas mm-hmm. but with positive sankharas? Yes. So it all remains in place? Everything, the world remains in place, yeah. yeah. The world remains in place, because it's the, it's the conditions that have changed. Once you change the conditions, as I've been saying, you know, from the unwholesome to the wholesome then in a way everything changes, doesn't it? If you, take away, if you take away the negative conditions which fuel, and it's a very good word, the actual word they use in, in Pali is feed, ahara, to feed. We're constantly feeding our negative impulses. We give them sustenance day by day, minute by minute. You know, kind of a keep giving it a nibble. <laughs> yeah, and we feed that stuff. Yet we starve all the positive emotions about this world. Uh, and often, I mean, I really do want to say this, often it's, it, you know, there's a kind of mistaken idea that Buddhism has a problem with emotions. Of course it doesn't. Buddhism never has any problem with emotions. And the only problem it has is with negative emotions which are destructive to our relationship. All of those life-affirming, life-enhancing emotions are to be cultivated and to be enjoyed and welcomed, and all the things that we could say about them. You know, to to really um, to be in this world in, in a wholesome, joyful state, and compassionate state, and kind state, and I don't need to say any more. But those are all to be encouraged. Love is to be encouraged. Yeah? Passion isn't it. Buddhism isn't passionless. People get this funny idea that Buddhism is kind of passionless. And it isn't. Yeah. I probably can't think of anybody probably more passionate than the Buddha at times. It doesn't, doesn't come across it in the translations, unfortunately, um, often. But his engagement with the world, his engagement with what he's teaching, and his, you know, the enormity of what he's trying to tell us. I mean, that metaphor he uses when he says, everything is burning, everything is flaming. He's trying to, well, get moving. Come on. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. You're going to end up with singed buttocks <laughs> if you don't move. Because um, there's kind of passion to it about getting going on this this wondrous path. <laughs> i sold it to you, yeah.
1: <laughs> Sorry.
2: Yeah. When one is nirvana-ing, what uh what is their relationship to memory and to experiences as they disappear from the present?
0: Well, memory is still there because sanya is still there. In other words, you know, discrimination is still there. It's not... Um, an inability to remember it's not an ability it's an it's what is being extinguished is the dwelling and the holding onto it and the grasping after it yeah so memory is there you can refocus but in the moment you don't have to keep recalling what's gone and, and, and fed all our normal reactions so actually sometimes it's good It's good to remember, but it's good not to see things totally just through memory, but to open up to the new condition as it arises. That's all. So as an opening up to a new condition, memory is still there and be there and can be recalled if you want it, but you don't have to dwell in it in the same way. Because actually a lot of things we remember uh, are actually very negative things. We often retain the negative dimensions of our life much more than we do the wholesome and positive dimensions of our life. (laughs) It's quite difficult sometimes with groups when you're trying to get them to visualise. Imagine something out of your past that was really, really good that you can relate to. People find it so difficult. (laughs) They can run the negative stuff quite easily. Um, Because in that wholesomeness, it's kind of almost let go of. But in the dwelling with the unwholesome, we again contract around it. And hold on to it, uh, and it also almost becomes embodied, doesn't it? Too, you know, that tightness in your gut—it's probably memory which is related to anger. It's just come out as a physical condition. Now, of course, when the Buddha is talking, when we're when talking about a Buddha or an Arhat in, in relationship to their memory, they're not holding on to it; they're not grasping after it. But it's obviously still functioning because it's still part of the discriminatory process.
2: I was just wondering what conditions Vedna um, because at different times, the same object can give rise to different... Um, you know, can give rise to a different a positive or negative. Mm-hmm. So it is sort of... The way it's taught, it often seems as though it's just an automatic, unintelligent sort of process from that, from the contact
0: mm-hmm. to
2: the Vedana arising. Mm-hmm. But something must be coming in there to say, well, now... Mm-hmm. Now it's you know say if you see a policeman right sometimes you know, if you've done something wrong. Strong negative. need a policeman, you get strong, you know, strong positive. Right? Yeah. Within, within the space of say ten
0: seconds. So all you're all you're saying, and you're you're almost making a case for it yourself here, is that it's contextual. Vedanta is often contextual, but the whole point about it, in particular way I was describing in relation to the Kandas or the skandas. Is that Vedana is unstable? That's exactly what is occurring. It is unstable. It does not remain the same. So even when we're talking, remember when we were saying, "Well, is is Vedana the self?" And of course, it's not. Well, one of the reasons why it's not the self is because it's unstable. It will respond to different conditions in different ways. I mean, as I say, you know, you could change from being—I don't know. Um, you know somebody who puts a hand on a hot plate and found it really unpleasant and in the course of your life for some reason you become more masochistic <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anybody ever... Is there something you want to tell us? Not yet, no. Confession occurs at the end. Confession occurs at the end. (laughs) (laughs) I always have this vision, actually, when I think of Vaden. There's a bit in a film, which some of you might have seen, The Little Shop of Horrors, anybody seen that film? Uh Uh, The meeting between the the masochistic patient and the sadistic dentist. (laughs) 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 <laughs> and he comes with his <laughs> pair of pliers to pull out of two. He's he going, can't you make them bigger? <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: so, is the, the
0: Buddha clear on on what conditions that it's, it's not gone into, other than the fact that it is unstable. The Abhidhamma makes a bit more um, about it, um, talks a little bit more about Vedana and the conditions which uphold Vedana but it's a, it's a, basically what you're saying is it's contextual conditions which will, you know, which will make that, you know, the, the context in which it's occurring and the rest of the other psychological components that go with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is automatic. That is true. It is automatic. I have no control in a way. You know, for example, even with your example, you know, if I am desperately you know, had an accident or something and looking for authority, a you know, policeman occurs to me as a positive phenomenon. Yeah, something which is good, and on, on another instance it might not, um, because you yeah, know, you might be driving too fast or something like that. Yeah, so it becomes a, a kind of uh, almost immediate negative feeling about it. So it's very, very, very contextual. But that feeling arises immediately upon contact. But that is automatic.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. But it will change, and it will change according to context. Emma, you want to ask question? Oh. No, yeah. it's gone um, <laughs> there. Um, so yeah, um, so so there's. Just let me get this clear that there's there's nothing intrinsically wrong anywhere with any of this stuff, this process. That is hmm. me, Matt. Hmm. It's purely the grasping. Is that it? Just yeah. <clears throat> take out the grasping, Ducker. Mm, it's not quite as simple as that.
2: <laughs>
0: that would be a good start. It would, yeah. It would be a good start. Um, but ultimately, of course, <laughs> ultimately, you have to remove the avidya. The avidya and the contents of avidya have to be removed, because otherwise it's still going to be productive of unwholesome wholesome sanskaras. Yeah. But wouldn't that come? <clears throat> wouldn't, wouldn't the two... Well, in a sense, the more that you can start to dissociate from the grasping attachment condition, then you can start to unravel back to a video. Because you'll see, actually, the more and more you do it, the more and more you can dwell in that state of letting go, the more likely you are to see the contents of what is driving the grasping in the first place. Yeah, which will be obviously avidya, sanskaras and consciousness and everything else. You'll see that whole process. So what we've got is the the immediate way of getting into that process at that point between vedana and um, craving. Yeah. But it still has to be the eradication of what is within avidya. Because actually, <clears throat> do you remember I, I used a phrase, I don't know if you picked up on the other day, Remember I was saying about the um, content of the vision is the asavas, the content of the vision, And a synonym for the awakened state is kinasava, one who has removed the asavas. Mm. <coughs> Brought a cessation to them. But it's a very good start. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: John, some teachers in other traditions, they talk about after liberation, there's um, some sort of working through um, the residue. Mm. And I'm just wondering if that's you know if that, if you you could see that as the same kind of thing as what you were just saying to Matt, right? you because know, there's that you've got to finish up all the the sort of storehouse of all the negative sankharas.
0: Well, yes, I mean, w- base, yes, basically what the arahant is doing. I mean, there's what's called nirvana with residue and nirvana without residue. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> with residue means that there is still elements which are there, but they're not enough to keep one bound to samsara, to samsara behaviour, in other words. So you would still be liberated, but there would still be minor traits and traces and sanskaras there. But they're not, in other words, the major ones of anything like greed, hatred and delusion. Those have all been eradicated and all that content. But there is something still there without residue is what is represented by a full and perfect Buddha. That's actually the definition. So actually an Arahant's the liberation of an Arahant is with residue and of a Buddha without residue. Also, so everything is gone with a Buddha. <clears throat> but I have to bear in mind, I mean, it's too late to do it now, but there are very big differences between the traditions. There are very big differences between the traditions because um, the Mahayana tradition will talk about even another form of Nirvana. Mm-hmm. which is called non-abiding nirvana here, which is the nirvana occurs to the bodhisattva on the path to Buddhahood, which allows them to dwell in sangsara and still to operate in sangsara with kindness, with compassion, um, but not be sucked into sangsaric existence. Um, but that's another whole story. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> At the end of the, um, the metasata,
1: it's... Says about um, simply not being born again to this world. Mm-hmm. Um, so how would that fit in with um, dependent origination, as you've been talking about it? Would
0: depends on you see. Depends on the way, and I know the way it's being used in this particular. Such it's being used in two senses, and you can interpret it in two senses. Which is literally the more traditional sense of not taking rebirth in the world again. Yeah, whatever is coming back into the world but in a way not being born into this world as the Sangsaric world again ever again, so the world is completely transformed, still the world but it's completely transformed, but it's not this world, the world that we are all too familiar with yeah, so it uses both senses of that doesn't it Okay, let's just sit for a few minutes uh, just to finish this evening. Let me turn this off.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit slash donate.